Welcome to the Pair Program from Hatchpad, the podcast that gives you a front row seat to candid conversations with tech leaders from the startup world. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, the creator of Hatchpad. And I'm your other host, Mike Ruin. Join us each episode as we bring together two guests to dissect topics at the intersection of technology, startups, and career growth. Hey, what's up, everyone? We're back for another episode of The Pair Program. I'm your host, Tim, accompanied with my co-host, Mike. Mike, how's it going? It's going great. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, I'm excited for today's uh, episode. So uh, today we're going to be talking about a topic covering tech debt. So, you know, something that most product startups will face at some point in their evolution. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll define it. You know, we'll discuss some of the different types. Uh, we'll recommend some ways of manage it, managing it. And uh, we have some excellent guests here to help us dissect that topic. So Leo and Jeff, thanks again for joining us, guys. Thanks for having me. Cool. All right. So before we dive into the discussion, as uh, as you guys are aware, you know, we like to kick things off with a fun segment that we call Pair Me Up. Pair, pair Me Up. Classic. Um, so this is a segment where we all go around the room. We call out complimentary pairings. And uh, Mike, kick things off for us, man. Why don't you start with uh, with your pairing? I think my pairing is going to be uh, bad hair and a hat because that's what's going on today. Uh, <laughs> my barber moved and I haven't found a new one. And that was back in like November. So, <laughs> oh, gosh, that's another good one. No hair and a hat. No hair. And a hat. That is a good one. <laughs> so there you go. So, nice. Tim, yeah, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah. So I'll um, I'm going to go with uh, meme stocks and FOMO. And this is something that I've honestly, I fall victim to the craze. Uh, tried r- riding like the GameStop wave at one point, um, didn't work out. And, uh, you know, by the time I, I hear about it, like most folks, it seems like it's obviously too late. And um, yeah, I have this sense of FOMO. So I thought that was kind of a, a pairing. I was curious if any of you guys have, did you, any of you get in on any of the meme stocks at the right time? Yeah, I made $100 on AMC and lost $100 on GameStop. So. <laughs> yeah, incredible. It balances out. It's the, it's the circle of life, right? Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're even. You're even. You're good. Um, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's pass it over to our guest. Uh, Leo, I'd love to you know, get your intro and uh, you know, what your pairing is. Awesome. Uh, my name is Leo Henschker. I'm the CTO at Column. We're a public benefit corporation uh, based all over the place in the U.S. We're remote, but and now about 40 folks. Um, actually got to know the Hatch folks from DC, uh, but now I am headquartered in Miami. And I would say that my my pairing is going to be cold brew and chocolate croissants. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, I have just recently discovered a bakery across the street from me, which blows my mind. It's called Zach the Baker. I am obsessed with this place. And so my, my recent <laughs> slightly dangerous morning routine is I get two cold brews and a chocolate croissant, and it is just, it's just amazing. It has materially improved my quality of existence. By just an egregious factor. Nice. When did the shakes set in? <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh. A, don't worry. They're already there. It's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> at this point. That's great. Um, cool. Well, Jeff, uh, yeah, quick intro and, and your pairing. Yeah. I'm Jeff Middleton. I'm a staff engineer at Color, which is a health tech company out in San Francisco, um, doing a lot of COVID testing and vaccination right now. Um, yeah, I know the Hatch folks from DC as well when I was at Aldade. And uh, yeah, always had a great time working with them. Um, I'm going to have to say my favorite pairing right now is Vim and Z Shell, which is just a, just a powerful, powerful toolbox. So that's what so I've been using I, for many oh, years. I, I'm old school. I, I like run Vim as in VI mode, shut down everything. Nice. Um, nice. And also this still use the same shell that I've always used since college. So T shell, but uh, I do love Z shell, but yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, no Vim is, that's a powerful combo. Real, nice. real nerd stuff. Real nerd stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, a dangerous, that's a dangerous take. That's, 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 uh, not saying you're pro Vim absent checking with like the other members of the group to see if there's strong opinions. It's, <laughs> don't move. it's I'm, sure. I'm sure we'll get some comments on it. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll embrace that. I'm sure there's a bunch of Emacs users out there still trying to figure out how to exit Vim. So we're, we're all good. <laughs> I, had to, I had to sync an attempt to, to move our development to GitHub code spaces because no VS code for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 
Well, good stuff. Well, let's let's dive into the discussion here, guys. Uh, I want to make the most of our time. And uh, yeah, so as, as I mentioned before, you know, this is going to be an episode talking about tech debt. And I thought it'd be cool just kind of kick off with a, a quote from you know Ward Cunningham, who's you know iconic software engineer. He was credited with kind of coining the phrase tech debt back in 1992. And uh, a quote uh, from him uh, saying, shipping first time code is like going into debt. A little debt speeds development so long as it is paid back promptly with a rewrite. The danger occurs when the debt is not repaid. Every minute spent on not quite right code counts as interest on that debt. Entire engineering organizations can be brought to a standstill under the debt load of an unconsolidated implementation, object-oriented or otherwise. So, I um, yeah, obviously that's a little bit more wordy uh, and technical. But Leo, you know, let's start with you and maybe like simplify this for our audience. Um, why don't you begin and kind of describe maybe what debt, tech debt means to you? Yeah, well, I would say also clearly that person has never heard of mon- modern monetary theory because debt, who cares these days? No, but <laughs> exactly. uh, my, uh, <laughs> my, uh, when I think about tech debt, I, I really think about kind of the, the experience I have pretty frequently um, in my role of looking back at the code base, looking at the things that we've written and wishing that we could move faster uh, but feeling held back by the constraints of decisions that we made in the past, um, whether it be the decision not to uh, not to spend the time that we needed on testing, the decision to implement something in a way that ended up being not scalable, the decision to uh, do something quickly that we knew would not cover all the edge cases we need. Um, and it's pretty constant, right? I, I think I, w- I would really challenge you to find any engineering leader who says, uh, wow, looking back at this code I wrote and my team wrote a year ago, I am so happy with every possible decision that we made. Um, but I, I, I think for me, really, when I think about what tech debt is, is it, it goes down to that um, feeling of looking back and looking at decisions we made that were local optimal, that were decisions that we made with the resources, decision-making process, and kind of um, structures we had in place at the time that have since proved to be a very local optimal, very, not even close to the global. Um, uh, yeah, and that, that's generally how I think about it. It's the decisions you make at a given point in time that, upon later reflection, turn out to be uh, materially not correct in hindsight. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mike, uh, if you want to maybe uh, follow up on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, uh, it's interesting because I think of um, when I think about technical debt. I think to me the big in, the the important part is uh, the product sort of involved. Like everybody's involved in making that decision. Like we're going like. We recognize that this is suboptimal, we're, but we're going to do speed. You know, we've decided that, like, we need to just stop the analysis paralysis and get something chipped. And so and we'll revisit this. And I think um, your take, I'm curious where the route because you were saying about, like, looking in hindsight at some of the suboptimal decisions we made. There's some decisions that you make that you can't foresee where the problem is yeah. going to be. And for those, I tend not to think too much in terms of technical debt in terms of like where I think about it is like, okay, as soon as we've identified the problem and we've raised the problem at the moment that we've raised the problem and decided not to address it, that's when the sort of tech debt clock kind of starts. Like you can make lots of decisions that turn out to be suboptimal. Right. But like I would, but the other thing, the, the counter to that is like, you can, you can spend a year trying to figure out all possible things and make something scalable. And then you haven't delivered shit. So you're out of business. Totally. So there's definitely, yeah. So I'm yeah. curious what your thoughts are. So I actually don't, I don't draw a distinction between those two things. And I think part of it comes down to at the end of the day, I do not believe that myself or other members or other people that I work with are making the conscious decision to do bad work. Um, I really don't think that happens frequently. I think it's much more common that someone is in the, and, and maybe bad work is the wrong term. I was going to say, um, I don't or think bad work. work. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, let me let me update that. that that's a good call out. It's, it's, I don't think that people are making the conscious decision to do incomplete work. It's just in the framework that you have at the company at a given period of time, and based on what you define as being complete, things get out, right? And mm-hmm. so, I, and from from my perspective, it doesn't really matter if it's lack of foresight or it's lack of a framework in place to create scalable, high quality work. It has the same result, right? It ends up being in kind of that outcome-oriented mind. It has the same outcome here of uh, looking in hindsight and being frustrated and unhappy with what you've done in the past there. And I think that's why I, I really do view technical debt as being inevitable. I think it's impossible to move oh, it around. Absolutely it's is, impossible it's absolutely to avoid. inevitable. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think in that light, I really like the framing of kind of viewing it as such, uh, because I think it removes some of that stigma that otherwise happens mm-hmm. when you frame it more in the line of making that conscious effort to do something and, and avoid some work is that it's no, really, mo- most frequently, this is a product of the way that your team works, the structures you have in place and kind of the resources you have available. It's not down to individual agency as much, at, at least mm-hmm. in my perspective. So speaking Speaking as someone who has intentionally done bad work for the sake of expediency, um, I, I think it can actually absolutely be true that um, sometimes that's that's for the greater good. Um, for instance, you need to get a contract signed. They want you to have this implemented next week. Uh, the only way to do it right is going to take three weeks. So you do the hacky version, get the contract signed, and then revisit it. Um, I think that's that's absolutely a thing that happens, the thing that, that I've done, um, and the thing that I've fixed later. So, um, yeah, but, but you're right that in most, most cases, um, it is just a product of the way that the team works. Um, I think where the danger comes in is when the team becomes habituated to working that way and then doesn't ever change that. And then you start getting into the, the phase where you are spending so much time paying back the debt that you're making very little forward progress. Right. At, at which point then somebody will inevitably suggest we should just replatform, not really recognizing that like all of those like terrible, like scars and things, the battle hardened thing that you currently have, is not going to be as easy to, to it, it's never as easy, <laughs> but, right. and that's not a great way to repay technical debt. You're like who, who like buys a house and then like doesn't maintain it. And then's like, okay, our house is falling down around us. We should buy a new house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, and I'm with you on the same thing. Like I've made those same decisions. Like I've intentionally, like, right. If it's professional services or there's something that's going on, there are times when you're consciously making the choice. And yeah. I think, as an engineer, my job is to make sure that I'm at least throwing a flag, that I'm at least letting someone know we are consciously making like this is we all agree that we're making this choice. There's nothing more frustrating than being in a meeting where someone where you later learn, well, we made this choice, but nobody bothered saying anything. And now we're we like we didn't actually all get to weigh in on whether or not that was the right decision. Yeah. Um yeah, I really like I like what you said, Leo, about destigmatizing it because it's it has a negative connotation to it when you hear debt, you know, and nobody mm-hmm. wants to to associate that with their, you know, who they are or, or their future. Um, but uh, Jeff, maybe it was you that we that touched on this when we were first speaking about this was like reorienting your thinking about it. Um, I just yeah. thought it was a creative way of of portraying it. Yeah. Um, so I I think that. If you consider tech debt to be a positive in an early stage organization, but at the same time, always assessing where it is irresponsible to do it, you can really make a lot of good leverage out of tech debt. In this, yes. like, for an example, you're 18 years old. It makes sense to take on debt to go to university, but it doesn't make sense to take on debt when you, don't, when you want to buy a house if you're 18. You know, I don't have a job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a house. Not good. But I want to go to college so I can get a better job and then buy a house. Good stuff. Um, and yeah, I have spent a lot of time at several jobs uh, fixing tech tech day in and day out. Um, and there have been plenty that it was, you know, just a straightforward refactor. And I could totally see why they made this decision. There have been others where it was, you know, just endless digging out of the hole and why did they do this? This this was bad. The worst example was uh, there was even a spreadsheet from the start of the company where they had a pros and cons on various technical choices. And MySQL had this extremely long list of cons and no pros. And Postgres had this extremely long list of pros and no cons and they went with MySQL anyway. <laughs> just That is incredible. I love that so much. <laughs> That's, that's amazing. <laughs> it, it bit him in the ass forever, you know, probably still does. Well, and also, I mean, I would say, I think I, I was also telling the group here that I, I just had a funny experience this morning in which I think um, a, uh, a lack of gates and checks on a build process that we have caused an issue. It caused a material issue. And actually, literally before this call, I, I think I was scrambling a little bit 
uh, to make sure like, hey, are, are we going to be fine? Am I going to have to jump off at some, random, at some random point here to fight a fire? But I think if just because why not uh, continue to beat the dead horse with the financial analogy, but I feel, I feel like a lot of the job of being an engineering leader, especially at something early stage, is like being, being Jerome Powell and saying, hey, like, this, is, this is what we can handle. This is the level that we're comfortable with at this moment in time, right? Like there's, this is what we're comfortable doing to be able to gain, t- gain velocity and move quicker here. Uh, and then as the organization progresses, I think, Jeff, one of the things that you said before this that also really, really um, resonated with me, with me was this idea of getting addicted to speed and getting addicted to doing things quickly and getting addicted to that kind of leverage that you can give on yourself. Uh, and as I saw today, and as we're seeing more and more as the company grows, we're now 40 as opposed to five, uh, there's consequences of us not being much more tightly regulated with the way that we make some of these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely lived through the addicted to speed where suddenly you're like, okay, we're going to, we've, we've added more people, we've added more product management. And then suddenly there's these, all these, why aren't we moving faster? We have 40, 40 F and engineers. Why can't, why is this taking so long? And it's like, well, turns out. Like we have more, what we're shipping though is better quality. Like what we were doing before was very, very quick, but it also relied on us then going in and quickly fixing it. <laughs> like, like it felt like we were making a lot of progress, but really it was a lot of, you know, a lot of iterative fast development. I think that's an interesting take is the getting addicted to speed. Um, yeah. And I, I think engineering, I think engineering, uh, can sometimes be misunderstood by non-engineering company leadership where, you know, the company's growing, they're saying, let's bring in some really senior engineers. And then the senior engineers end up spending all their time fixing tech debt. Um, and so, you know, why, why aren't we doing the big stuff we were talking about when we hired these people? And it's like, oh, well, they're dealing with the consequences of our position. Hmm. You know, I guess I'm curious on uh, to dive a little bit deeper on that in terms of like ways of managing it, you know, and getting in front of it early on. Um, any anything specific that that you've seen that was helpful for you uh, in your past life, uh, Jeff? And I'd love yeah. to hear Leo's take too after that. After that, because Leo, you're in a very unique situation with a company that's scaling very quickly. You know, going from C to A and just really interesting uh, size. So I'd love to hear that perspective as well. Yeah, I, I think one thing that you can do that that really really helps is even if you're writing code that is suboptimal for the reasons of you know speed or team size or whatever if you keep really high you know like 99% test coverage you can always refactor it safely but if you don't have good test coverage there will always be some unexpected behavior then you end up with a prod outage and then you're spending more time fixing things and not moving forward um and yeah, that is something that I have learned through experience, um, going quickly and not writing tests, really bad combo. The irony of that, of course, is that tests are the first thing you discard when trying to yes. move quickly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the first bit of technical debt you yeah. accrue. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the things that I, I actually had a really fun conversation recently with someone who was the CTO of a company also in a really similar stage. And we just spent half of our time talking about uh, how quickly irrelevant all of our jest tests became. We spent all, both of us made this, this big co- kind of cohesive push within the team to like, okay, great. We're going to buckle down. We're going to get these tests and we're going to really, really, uh, orient around getting these good, spend time, reduce flakiness, get these in there. Uh, and then in just unbelievably short order, it felt like all of that work became incredibly irrelevant. Um, but hey, it, it was a stable time. And so I think I, I, I can't, I, uh, I can't, I can't argue with the results on that front. Nice. I'm curious how you guys like what you guys have dealt with, like in terms of for the non-engineering, right? For like, I think it's pretty easy, like product, a good product manager usually gets it and it's it's not that big a deal. But as you get further and further away from engineering, you get into other parts of the organization. Like, do you even talk about technical debt or do you try and phrase it in other ways because there's such a negative stigma? Or do you try and talk about how technical debt actually is a positive thing? Like, I'm just curious what your, what your take on that is and how you talk to other parts of the org about tech debt. Yeah. Um, I really like the, uh, maybe just call it a saying of you can have fast, right? And cheap pick two. Um, and you know, fast and cheap is really great, but you know, that, that right is the tech debt. And, um, I think that can really help people understand, um, 
what's what's at stake. Uh, you know, you can do all sorts of analogies like, hey, you're getting an extension out into your house. Do you want it fast, right, and cheap? Um, you know, pick two, and they'll, they'll sort of see the light there. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that we... Uh, we're in the early phases of this, and so I'm, I'm going to be curious to see how this goes and, and what um, and how... At, at the moment, I, I'm, I'm very happy with it, but we'll, we'll see if this kind of translates, is that... Um, We've started to get much, much more explicit around uh, effectively tracking things within uh, Jira. We actually just made a switch from uh, GitHub to Jira, which has been kind of life-changing, honestly, um, because what we've now been able to do is... We, so the first thing we did here was we uh, literally within our CI enforced that you are unable to merge to any... You are unable to merge to either a staging or a production branch absent uh, linking to uh, a Jira ticket and having a category on that Jira ticket. And what it did for the first time was force visibility across what are the changes across the organization actually benchmarked on. Like, what are they, what are they against? Why are they happening? What are they? Um, and it put us today in this, in this kind of magical position of being able to kind of communicate externally for the first time. Uh, this is the percentage of work being done on uh, things that we are tagged bug, that things that are tagged backlog, things that are tagged we do dead, right? Like things that are tagged in that sense. Um, because before that, I think we were never able to quantify that in any way. It was always just this nebulous note of, well, we have to spend all this time making sure things are working well. Whereas now, I feel much more confident saying, actually, X percentage of the work that we do on a going forward basis is likely going to be tied towards uh, system improvement, which gives us, hey, if we have this, if it's X percentage avail- uh, required for system improvement, we have fixed costs related to go lives. Uh, the expectation is for the implementations that we're doing, there's going to be a fixed cost. That gives us this much bandwidth for new product work. If we want to increase that number, awesome. Let's hire more people. Otherwise, that number is going to stay here, and we're only going to be able to do X on a per spin cycle basis. Um, but I think that type of analysis, pre more effectively tracking in Jira, is never something that we were able to do. I, it's funny because I had uh, almost identical experiences twice. First, um, when I hired a program manager, and she spent all this time going into Confluence and Jira and building all these things that could actually accurately show us like this is the amount of new work we're working on and this is the amount of rework let's all agree rework is bad new work is good and once we started tracking that and being able to see that that was like yeah definitely life-changing in terms of being able to communicate that and then at my last job I, de- I basically was like that worked really well so i did that again where we just sort of tag things a little bit and i was able to in in my management meetings say like okay this is this is the percentage of new stuff we're working on this is rework this is my like goal. Like I have an OKR around trying to get us to this and we can drive towards that. And then when there were like weird spikes or whatever, I could be like, Oh yeah, well this was when we decided that we want, like we ma- remember when we made this terrible decision and I said it was a terrible decision. Well, <laughs> this is the rework of that terrible decision. We all agreed that we were going to do. And, and it made the conversations a lot easier, like because yeah. I was able to say like, by the way, we will be paying this off at some point in the future. And then when it happened, I would be able to tag it and say, like, this is this is it. This was the result of our decision. Next time we're having this conversation, I'm going to pull this up and we're going to ha- you're going to know what we're getting into. Um, so it was, I have very similar experience. I think it's a great way to sort of frame it up. I will say on the subject of not allowing merges without Jira tickets, um, I have at a couple of companies had the experience of a large portion of my job being like spelunking through the monitoring to see which endpoints have a high P95 and then going into that endpoint, fixing some query or fixing some N plus one problem. And, you know, the Git blames from six years ago from an engineer that left four years ago. Hmm. There's of course no Jira ticket. It's just <laughs> like, you know, you just write as detailed a commit description as you can and call it that. Yeah, I think uh, one of the points that we're covering here, uh, which I think is is fascinating, which a lot of people don't think through uh, as a derivative of tech debt, is like how it impacts the 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 work environment, like the culture, and how if it's not addressed, or the, I like the way that you put it, Leo, of like that, that visibility uh, across the org uh, to eliminate what what a lot of folks have said, like the blame game, right? I'm I'm curious uh, if there's any specific examples or you know what. What else you've seen of like how this can impact the work culture? Because you've got these different teams all working towards this product, but maybe it's like feature prioritization and who's on who's who knows what's coming out first. And um, any any specific uh, thoughts on that? 
I will say that you just said a very interesting word. Uh, that is a concept that I have been thinking about recently uh, in going into recording this this podcast. The derivative, um, you know, I I watched some movies about The Big Short recently, and I've been thinking about, you know, that whole financial housing market collapse was based on taking making additional financial products based off of debt. Um, and it is possible to build more tech debt as a derivative of existing tech debt that not only gets you deeper into the hole, but means that you cannot fix the original tech debt until you fix the tech debt that, that derives from it. Um, and uh... Hiring the right software engineer doesn't come easy or at an affordable price. As an early stage founder growing quickly, you need strong technical talent without breaking the bank. That's why we created Scale, Hatch IT's flexible recruiting program tailored for startups hiring on a startup budget. Whether you're looking to bring on a new head of engineering or a product manager, Hatch has you covered with dedicated support from seasoned tech recruiters at a fixed monthly cost. Take back the time you've spent sourcing through your own LinkedIn connections and let Hatch handle the heavy lifting of recruiting for you. And while you're at it, give your CFO something to smile about when they're no longer paying for high-priced finder's fees. Visit us at hatchit.io to start hiring on your startup budget today. That is something that is even harder to explain to non-technical folks. Like, <laughs> oh, well, why can't we fix this thing? It's, oh, this whole other thing we're doing? We have to fix that first. Um, yeah. Sorry, that didn't answer your original question, but but you said derivative and it, it stuck with me. I, mean, I think that's an interesting topic, but I do think, uh, you know, uh, with the, the cultures thing, I think there is some impact. I think there's impact at lots of different places for culture. And I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are, but like engineers have a totally different, like, if you have a lot of tech debt, I think it can be frustrating for engineers to work in an environment where that's the case because they feel very hamstrung. And then there's other people who feel frustrated, but in a different way because we're not moving fast enough. I'm curious, mm. like from a culture perspective, when you have a lot of that sort of going on, I'm curious what your thoughts are on like, yeah, how does that affect company culture overall? Yeah, I think one thing that can really affect company culture is when you have uh, a large proportion of engineers whose first and only job was at a company that does everything based on tech debt. Even getting them to understand that there is a different way can be hard. Mm. Mm. Like, not only should we not be doing this, but let me first teach you that there is a way that isn't this. Um, and, you know, teaching people new habits is one of the hardest things about humans. Um, and that, that, that can be a huge component of a culture where, you know, you've got to not only convince people to change, but convince them that changing is even possible. Right. Or the right thing to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I think also the, the note around kind of team impact is super relevant here because I, at least personally, and I, and I think I've seen this a lot is that, a kind of self-conception of a group of people is incredibly impactful for the work that they do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if folks spend too much time or the, the I, like majority plurality or, or whatever of their time exclusively focused on what feels like a mistake, um, the self-conception is, oh, we're a team who makes mistakes, right? We're, we're, that's, that's like the dominant mental story of like, oh, most of my time is spent picking mistakes. That's because most of what we well, mostly we're not good, right? Like, we're, oh, maybe we're not good. Maybe we can't do things right. Maybe we're not a group who's able to do this. And I think that I've seen this particularly when teams uh, that I have been on are kind of strapped for resources in terms of number of people, because it, at least for us and our business, there is a certain fixed amount of work that's required for supporting customers that we have. And so if the co combination of the fixed amount of work for supporting customers in the early phases of when they're going live, plus technical debt is the totality of time, that can really make it feel like, oh, no, we're not a group who's in a position to really innovate here. We don't have the resources. We don't have the bandwidth uh, to really innovate. And I think that's, it's, not, it's not a product of the group being incapable. It's just really a function of hours that are available within a group to, to even try to solve that problem. And if you don't ever make it past that threshold, um, to even have the resources available to actually start making progress, it can be hard. And then the self-conception is a group that doesn't ship new things. And that's, that's right. the worst. I mean, 
That's a really interesting one because I think there's two components to that. There's the resources and resource availability, right? Like everything, you know, there's there's a fixed amount of whatever, whether it's people to do work, hours, whatever, it all comes down to fixed number of resources, which gets into prioritization, prioritization and how you prioritize. And frequently, I think people are like, oh, we don't make time to do blah or we don't. And no, it's like, no, we, we're, we're prioritizing onboarding new customers. That's what we're that's what we've decided to prioritize and fixing technical debt and not innovating. And so I think sometimes engineers especially can only that's what they feel and that's what they see. And I think it's important to maybe try to address that in some sort of way of like, well, we're making this conscious decision because getting more customers onboarded will lead to more money, which will allow us to hire more engineers, which will allow us to actually start innovating versus a lot of like, in, I remember really early on, like me thinking like, man, if these guys would just stop and slow down a little bit, like <laughs> we could fix this. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, yeah, if we stop and slow down a little bit, we'll also go out of business. And it's like, you don't quite, you don't have all of the information when you're, when you're slinging the code. So I think it's important to actually talk about yeah. that stuff to try and explain why we're making the decisions we're making and why we're prioritizing mm-hmm. what we're prioritizing. Um, that can go a long way to sort of addressing that very, like, we don't have enough resources to, to do everything. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of resources too, I mean, I guess this is a, a point that we can certainly talk on from a, you know, a recruiting and hiring perspective, right? <laughs> like at, at, from a timing, you know, issue of, you know, how long is it going to take us to get the, the right engineers in here for this build? This is where, you know, you kind of have to let a little bit of your guard down in terms of how picky you want to be, because the longer that, that is delayed, you know, you talk about that, that debt buildup, you know, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna cause, cause a lot of uh, toxic things to the company at large. And they're like, well, why isn't that position getting filled? Well, it's partially because you're looking for this, you know, this unicorn engineer, you might need to flex a little bit on that because we can find you somebody a little quicker if you tweak, uh, tweak the requirement just a, a, just a, a tad. The, the new grad that has 10 years of experience. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. <laughs> And also, I think, especially, and this is now, please forgive what is going to be a slightly brief soapbox here, of, I, I think when you, especially at some of these early stages, when you're looking for people to join an early stage engineering organization, often the best predictor for effectiveness within that organization is not the best predictor for effectiveness within a large, large engineering company that has been existing for 10 years. It's different things. It's absolutely mm-hmm. different things. And I think from our end, we have seen that literally like in, we, we have seen that literally that some of the people at the company who are the most effective came in with the least background. And some of the folks who took longer ramp, ramp up have more experience. And that's super natural, I think, for early stage companies. And I think if you talk to almost anyone across the board, they're going to see that. Um, and I think both folks have a really material role to play of having someone who is early in a job, who wants to get in the weeds, who wants to spelunk and learn things and figure things out and be a part of that like rough and tumble of the early stages is incredibly powerful. And I also think so much more powerful when you have that person with a senior engineer than just people who are senior engineers who are objective, who go come into an environment and be like, oh my God, this is one-tenth of what I would want or what I'm used to from my, in, my, in my other context. But actually in this position, just like have this person coupled with someone who wants to learn what this person knows and they can work together to actually improve a system. I think that is so magical. I think that is so unbelievably magical. I, I yeah. completely agree. I think that there's, there, there are different engineers for different stage companies. It's not necessarily the case that an engineer can't be successful at those different stages, but there's a different mindset when you're early on versus and so on and so forth. And to recognize that, I think the other thing to Tim's point that I think is interesting, I can't tell you how many times I've had like conversations of like, yeah, if we had hired somebody three months ago, we would have been in a much better position. But like, like, and we're now we're, we've almost created like recruiting debt where like interviewing debt or whatever, where like the amount of work we have to get done precludes us from even spending the time to try and find the right people and to like do the, to do effective interviews. And like, it can be kind of daunting. And it's like, well, you know, we'll, 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 after this sprint, we'll get to it. And then it's like, it just sort of, you sort of kick the can and then you sort of, don't really do the hiring that you need to do to address like what you know is coming down the pike. Hmm. I'm curious oh, if people totally. have similar. Yeah. I'm sure Tim can remember sometimes this holiday <laughs> when we were throwing out like, we don't have any time to interview. So only send us people, you know, that have this and this and this. And- yeah. I've got some, uh, some early gray hairs, I think as a result of some of that. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a topic uh, that's an episode it. in itself, honestly, is, yeah. is that mold of a startup engineer and, and, you know, there, those foundations that maybe it's like, you know, that, that is a, a piece of, of, of a mold of an engineer that maybe is a little bit more adapted to like, you know, understanding tech debt because they've been in this startup environment at an early stage. And it's been a little bit more of like, you know, it's almost like, you, get, you know, that you gotta, you gotta play with a little bit of a budget here. It's not just go, go wild yeah. on your spend. You know what you're also, doing too. Yeah. Totally. And also to that, to one of the one of the people who I the, the person like who I, I look up to so so unbelievably highly in the space is Charity Majors, who has this note that I love about startup teams as well, is that when you're hiring, it's about the team. It's not about individuals that you're bringing on that team. It's about the team dynamic and the team structure. Mm-hmm. And that that has been incredibly impactful for me for how I think about this as well. Um because yeah, having having six people come in who have only worked in an environment absent any of that, of that type of issue, I do not think would work well. <laughs> yeah, totally also, agree. quick hot take that I'm going to throw out there that I'm curious to see if people disagree with is I would say every single time we have ever in the history of this company implemented a class hierarchy for abstraction, it has been a horrible idea. Part of, there, like, I, I, I'm not even kidding. Like Pretty much every single time we have absent a literal year of getting things slightly more extensible, I have regretted it every single time. And yeah, every single um, time I've ever imported image magic, I have been sad. <laughs> those are my those are my two things. If I have ever using image magic, I know it's because there's I know there's going to be a catastrophe in six months. I just know it. And if we're, if there if I if there is a class, I will hate it shortly. That those are my two things I can always turn back to that I know will be the case. Yeah, you want pillow instead of image magic. Um, <laughs> Python imaging library and. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you, you you almost never need inheritance uh, unless you're modifying some framework that isn't yours to begin with. It's so true, and that to me feels like one of those interesting, meaningful deviations from what you learn uh, into in practice. Of you really rarely need inheritance, almost never. It's almost always the incorrect call, and that is always so shocking to me. From but like on every access of readability, maintenance, simplicity, almost every single time we have chosen for we have chosen abstraction over copying and pasting something in two different places, we have regretted it. Doesn't sound very enterprise. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> I mean, I but do you think that a lot of if you think about where OO came from and inheritance and the rest of it, it's also from the days when we had waterfall like methodologies like it's just a different time um i think that there's it's probably a whole nother topic i mean like i i okay, yeah. and like of course this is a product of the stage the company's at because all everything we're doing right now is encountering the fact that early on we made the incorrect we made those incorrect structural decisions well, right i mean um, the fact is i think m- most engineering decisions are like suboptimal optimization like we don't understand the optimization we're, 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 anytime yeah. we're trying to optimize mm-hmm. we're the really bad optimal. at optimizing <laughs> Yeah. Humans suck at it. <laughs> I would say this is one benefit of of uh, starting with a language like C, where you don't have any of that, um, yeah. and you need to to learn the best practices without any sort of like modern paradigm at all. is is a really powerful tool. Um, I know schools have, have stopped doing Ooh, that's that. That's a hot take. Sorry, are you saying like from a company perspective or from an individual learning perspective? From an individual perspective. Yeah. Okay. Thank God. I'm advocating for uh, for assembly. That's all we're going to write in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I had a professor. Oh, go for it. My choice. I'd rewrite it in Rust. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a I had a professor who it was just it, it was it was amazing speaking with them because he'd be like, "See, bloatware. I don't use it ever." <laughs> and he's like, "Are you really bloatware?" He's like, "Yes." Inefficient bloatware. Don't even show me it. Uh, mm. I also just maybe laugh. That's amazing. Um, yeah, we had a lot of hot takes on this one. I like, that. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll add one to it as well. So, like uh, your big short reference, Jeff. I think um, Adam McKay is one of the greatest directors of like our time. I, yeah. I, he's just genius. Like the Anchorman too. Like Anchorman yeah. was just freaking great. Um. But yeah, just be mindful here. So we do want to transition into another segment. Uh, we've got just about ten minutes left. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you guys have any last comments on the on uh, tech debt before we transition. 
We'll probably need another episode, to be honest with you, just to to dissect it deeper. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think that was I think that was a good uh, good riff for about 20, 30 minutes. So um, cool. Well, let's dive into this next segment. This community wheel behind me uh, is a segment called Round Out My Career. And this is an area where you know we kind of crowdsource some topics and questions from the Hatchpad community. And it's more, you know, a little bit more geared around career growth, uh, hence the name. So the, the topics can range anything from like compensation to diversity uh, to interviewing. So um, we'll go to give it a spin and see, uh, see what today's topic is. Are we getting a lucky uh, Raspberry Pi winner? <laughs> no, we're, no, no, this no, time. No, we're, all right. we're saving on our debt uh, through through no. Oh, yeah, saving on the literal debt. I love it. is going to cause a literal debt. I think. I think we need to rethink some things. <laughs> yeah, we're we're uh, we didn't want to disclose that publicly. <laughs> all right, so um, it landed on mentorship. Uh, so could be mentorship slash coaching here. Uh, let me see here. I'm going to just pull something that we've got in this category. All right. So what are areas outside of the engineering or product department that you believe are the most valuable to the growth, uh, sorry, to the growth of a startup technologist? I would um, say... Jeff? Oh, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, being able to understand what a business does, why they do it, and then being able to map what you're doing as an engineer to that mm. is huge. Uh, I think a lot of people aren't able to make that connection to, okay, we have this feature for this client that does this, and this feature for this client that does this, but at their core, they're both doing this, you know, some business abstraction that can be implemented in code and can, can really help you, um, you know, when PMs come to you with, oh, we've got this requirement, you can understand why that's a requirement, um, even if it might seem a little esoteric. That's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. Um, I, I put the question in the comments here. So, um, Leo, if you, if, in case you forgot the, the question. Yeah. Um. It's kind of a silly one, but I think having someone teach you how to send emails is really helpful. Uh, I, something that I see really frequently, and this, this is something that was true for me early on and uh, very frequent for folks on development teams early on, is that there's kind of a cadence to professional email sending that if no one tells you, you don't learn and makes the communication you have incredibly unclear. Uh, and it's it's it's... One of the, I think, most impactful experiences for me was I, I was working at a previous company uh, based in the, I, it was actually Quorum, which is one of the one of the companies based in the DC area, which I think some of the folks at Hatch know as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was writing an email, and it was like three massive block paragraphs, uh, and it was just horrendous. And then someone came up to me, looked at it, and said, "Who was reading this? Literally, who was reading this?" And it was a bit of a wake up call for me. Be like, "Oh, right." Uh, maybe there's a bit of an art here that I've always discounted to these folks on the business side who spend all their time talking about how good their email cadences are. Uh, but no, that, I, I, I think that there's really, really quickly, if you are either growing in your role or speaking with folks externally, the dominant medium of communication that you end up using is email. And being able to do that well, succinctly, powerfully is just game changing. And so that's one that I would highlight. I would. I would um I would go so far to say just communication journal because I do agree that email, especially if you're talking external, right? Um, last few organizations yeah. I've worked at, uh, I've made it a rule like we internal communications don't happen over email. Like we should use Slack for quick things and Google Docs or or Office 365, whatever it is for long form. Like I don't want like to me email is like terrible. Like it's we could probably have a whole segment where Mike just hates on email. I'm I got a hot take on that, but I love it. But anyway, email is great for external communications, but whatever. Well, let's just move on. I agree, though, that communication in general is an area where uh, a lot of engineers struggle a little bit with the long form, how to actually, you know, like the, the, I didn't have time to write a short email, like that type of like, like sometimes it's just really long, but it doesn't need to be that long. Like just get to it. Um, similarly, reading, I think. It's not just about writing. It's about being able to read a communication and recognize that 
the voice of the other person yeah. isn't malevolent. Like they're not like there's a lot of people, I think, who take things very like who might take a direct communication and read a little too much into it. And um, so I think it's 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 not just writing. It's also the being able to read a, an email. Well, on that subject, that's a great point to bring up. Um, my old boss, Edwin, as I'm sure Tim remembers, uh, made me read this book that at the time I was very annoyed that I had to read. But, um, uh, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on the name. Maybe we can add it at the end. Uh, the whole concept of the book is this idea of you can be in the box where you have a preconceived notion about another person's intentions and you map that notion to everything that they say. And so they told you you couldn't implement something one time, so they don't like you. And you read every email through that lens. Um, and that's a really easy trap to fall into, especially when you're in the workplace. Um, and, you know, like you said, with text, there's no emotion attached to it. Mm-hmm, right. So it's very easy to filter that in multiple ways. Um, I always advocate, you know, always assume someone's got good intentions until they prove that they don't. But even yeah. then, like I've worked with, I, even then, like just because they had bad intent, like you can't just always assume that that, that, that person is that way right. to that point with right. the, the mm-hmm. person in the box. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. And also one thing that I think is, is fair and hard to realize is that just because someone can be incredibly enjoy you as a person and be unhappy with what you did. Yes. And, and that it's not because they're a bad person. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're bad at their job or they're bad at their job. It's that there are situations people find themselves in, in which the outcome does not work out. The outcome right. was insufficient mm-hmm. for one of the two parties, no one's fault, but that is what happened. And I think being comfortable with that and separating that from a personal relationship is incredibly hard, inc- unbelievably hard. Um, but to that point, it, 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 you, you have to learn to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I, whatever that book is, I would love to know it. Yeah, we'll get the uh, Leadership in the Art of Self-Deception just came to me. We'll type it in the chat. Cool. Yeah, we'll throw um, that in the show notes. Uh, another good one um, for sort of non-engineering things is it's totally okay to screw up. You're not going to get fired. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, like, if you leak the whole database, that's on you. But I, I mean, mean, is it? You can screw up. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are bugs. There are outages. You know, mm-hmm. it happens. I've had more than yeah. my share. You know, it, it is what it is. You learn from it. Don't beat yourself up. You know, the CEO is not going to come to your desk and punch you in the face. Like mm-hmm. it's, it is, it is what it is. You know, people are people. Yep. It's, it's funny that you yeah. bring that up because that's one of my favorite stories when I like when I start engineering, like managing a team or a new team or whatever, I'll sort of talk about some of my history or whatever. And I still remember my very first big screw up where like customer on the phone running my install script deleted, like basically re- like just deleted from root on down, like learned a very valuable nice. lesson, like install script nice. shouldn't have RM in them. They should have move stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Minor things. Mm-hmm. Um, but he like, oh, that's so fair. <laughs> he lost it on the call and i remember thinking like um so like this is not good and my manager put the phone on mute and said don't worry about it my fault i should have actually reviewed some of this before it went out the door. like mm-hmm. just take a deep breath don't worry everything's gonna be fine and like we had and most recently we had a similar incident um where there was a security incident some things sort of didn't go great recovered it was reported it was dealt with the person felt terrible. Yeah. I was like, you got to not feel terrible. Like everybody mm-hmm. makes mistakes. It's totally okay. Um, it's, it, it's just part of the job. And I think that that's an important thing to, to recognize and call out. Mm-hmm. It's an engineering team. You know, yeah. it's not you screwed up. There was a whole chain of failures here. And right. one big thing I'm a huge advocate of is blameless incidents. So anytime something goes wrong, you have an incident, you have a postmortem and it's nobody's fault. Mm-hmm. Like, there were contributing factors. Someone may have contributed more than others. That doesn't mean that that's their fault. Um, right. And if you get in the habit of anytime something goes wrong, you write up an incident report, you have a post mortem, there's no search at all. Yeah, I guess I'd add, uh, Jeff, I really liked your first point too about, you know, kind of almost like getting a, a better sense or a view of the business uh, at large versus just like, what is my role here um, and what is my lane? I like this concept that that some startups have done where they they almost have this rotational program where you get a chance to get a taste of each department, maybe do like a shadow, you know, one week of the marketing department or, you know, 
you know, maybe it's not as appealing, but you know, you want to get a, get a sit down with like the, the CFO or the finance side of things. Um, just re- well rounding you uh, as a business person at large, and then giving you more, more buy-in into you know the the company and, and what you're doing with them versus like feeling like you're just this role and, and that's your department and that's it. So I think I really like that that point of you know getting a getting on board with the the, the bigger business as an operation versus just you know I'm I'm a technologist here or I'm an engineer here. Also, at, at the end of the day, like works. It, it works about the people in some senses. Like, yeah, these are the people that you're, you're tying yourself with. And I think broadly, uh, it is, I, at least for myself, uh, I like spending time with the people who have chosen to also work on the same thing that I care about. That is just fun. I just enjoy that. And so like independent, even of what the focus is, that, that's something that really kind of, um, is something that matters for me. Good stuff. But also, it's just a job. And if you're not having fun anymore, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, cool. I think that's a good stopping point. Um, you know, thanks guys for, for hanging out with us and, and, uh, tackling this topic of tech debt anywhere specific that you want to shout out that, you know, uh, listeners can, can find you or follow you. Feel free to, to do so now, or, uh, we can also, you know, post it later. Hit me up on LinkedIn. That's all I got. LinkedIn. Oh my God. Amazing. Uh, Okay, I, I don't know. I've actually never been asked this question. That's kind of funny. I guess LinkedIn or Twitter. I, I yeah, I can I can do all that. I'll give my my Twitter handle after the fact. Cool, cool, awesome. Thank you for listening to the Pair Program. If you'd like to continue the conversation from this week's episode, you can do so with the Hatchpad community. Join us at chat.myhatchpad.com.